Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll look at the history behind the expansion of the Florida State Capitol. When the executive tower was finished and the governor and the cabinet finally moved out, I stayed on because I just wanted to demonstrate that, according to the Corps of Engineers and our own studies, the state historic capitol building was perfectly sound. We'll discuss the letter book of Governor John Milton. The letter book really is an incredible glimpse into the workings of the governor's office during uh, the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history, at least on U.S. soil. And talk about the history of drive-in movie theaters in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Throughout most of the 20th century and up to the present, the Florida legislature has discussed the possibility of moving the state capitol from Tallahassee to a more central location. In 1967, serious consideration was given to moving the state capitol to Orlando. This inspired opponents of the move to spearhead construction of an expansive new capitol complex in Tallahassee. Looking at a map of Florida, one might wonder why Tallahassee was named the capital of Florida in the first place. In the 1700s, the British had named St. Augustine the capital of East Florida and Pensacola the capital of West Florida. When Florida became a United States territory in 1821, most of the population resided in North Florida between these two cities. It was decided that Florida needed one unified capital, so one person started walking from Pensacola and another from St. Augustine, and they met in Tallahassee. Bruce Mathers is former Florida Secretary of State, and Mary Adkins is author of the book Making Modern Florida, How the Spirit of Reform Shaped a New State Constitution. What happened was that Florida was suddenly opened up in the late 1890s by the railroads. You had the two Henrys, Henry Plant taking his railroad down to Tampa Bay. You had Henry Flagler taking his railroad from St. Augustine down to Palm Beach and ultimately into Miami. In fact, interestingly, one of my grandfathers helped vote for the incorporation of the city of Miami in 1896. But that suddenly opened up the peninsula. Before that, Florida was just the Old South, a band of about 60 to 90 miles along the southern Georgia and Alabama border. And below that, there were Seminole Indians, uh, military forts, a few straggling settlers and things like that, but basically swamps, mosquitoes, and no one wanted to live there. The biggest thing that was happening was that Florida's population was growing very fast. As we all know, it, we had a big boom in the 20s and then a bust, and uh, after World War II, we had the population just continuing to grow and grow and grow. 
the population um, was filling in in Central Florida and South Florida, where historically in the 19th century, everybody had lived within 50 miles of Georgia or Alabama. And the problem was that the Constitution that we were under in mid-20th century Florida was an 1885 Constitution. And it had provided for a legislative apportionment scheme that was perfect for 1885. Um, it had most of the districts. They were geographically small and, and had small populations, and they, they were mostly in northern Florida. As the population grows, everyone's going to central Florida, south Florida, and the beach, and there's not many legislative districts left over down there. So you end up with very large populations of people in places like Dade County, and they have almost no or very little representation because of the strictures of the 1885 Constitution. It's a constitutional question, which dealt with the composition of the Florida legislature. The old 1885 Constitution basically gave every county at least one state representative, and we have 67 counties. Some of them are, are really tiny. And then it capped the number of legislators that a large county had. So end up in the 1960s, Florida had the most malapportioned state legislature in the country. Such a few number of Floridians could basically elect a majority or controlling interest in the Florida legislature, rural and North Florida. Well, the Supreme Court ruled one man, one vote applied to state legislators, and so we had to enact a new constitution in 1968, and the old pork chop gang, primarily located in North Florida, suddenly realized that all of these large urban centers, counties, in South and Central Florida would suddenly gain control. And there was a movement, one state senator introduced a resolution to move the capital from Tallahassee to Orlando to be more central. And they suddenly realized, my gosh, this can happen. So suddenly it became a mad rush by the northern pork chop and rural uh, senators and legislators to locate, build a brand new Capitol building for Florida because they felt that once the concrete and steel was in the ground, no one would ever move it from North Florida and Tallahassee. So that was the impetus for the new Capitol building a group that became known as the Pork Chop Gang, which was a group of uh, rural, mostly northern, um, rural senators that actually took an oath to vote together in a block to support the southern way of life. They saw their state being, being changed, being filled in, being urbanized, being populated with people who were not southerners, they didn't share their values, they were Cuban, Jewish, northern, they were all kinds of things that were not what the uh, the group in charge was comfortable with. And so they felt that to defend and preserve the way of life that, that they valued, they needed to hold on to that. And so that was another reason that they held on to the apportionment scheme the way it was. As the populations of South Florida and Central Florida continued to grow, it became much more difficult for the Pork Chop Gang to retain control in Tallahassee. The constitutional scheme, apportionment scheme, said that no county could have more than three representatives and every county got one. So imagine Liberty County in the far panhandle had, now I don't know, but I'm going to guess maybe 2,000 people. It got a representative. 
Dade County had half a million people. It got three. So that was the nature of the lack of power. Southern Florida needed roads, it needed hospitals, it needed prisons. Maybe it wanted some tourist development dollars that might come from the state. There was just no interest in allocating things like that to really any part of the state because, of course, northern Florida didn't have that, didn't want it, and, and didn't need it. The pork chop gang saw their power threatened but thought that they could at least keep the capital in Tallahassee if they built an expensive new capital building there. In their zeal to build a new capital, they decided to tear down the old capital building. As Secretary of State, Bruce Mathers led an uphill battle to save the historic state capital. So we actually felt, hey, we would lose. But the idea 40 years from now or 50 years from now, when people look back, at least they'll know that when we lost the capital, we went down fighting. It's sort of like I was out of the Navy and I was going to go down with the ship and with all guns firing. And our strategy basically was initially just to delay and delay and delay and try to build up support. There was lots of support from historical groups around the state. Florida doesn't have a lot of history except in the colonial past. But we had the fifth oldest state capitol building in continuing use in the United States, dating back to 1845 because the interior walls were there as it expanded. And Unlike Texas, which maintained their historic capital building by building their new offices, et cetera, underground, uh, the decision was made because it was on a hill to build the new capital right next to the old capital. And as the new capital was finished, they would move in and they would tear down. Ultimately, when the executive tower, the 22-story executive tower was finished, they would tear down the whole capital building or rebuild an 1845 structure. G Governor Askew wanted a fountain. He wanted it totally removed. The proponents of destroying the historic Capitol building claimed that it was unsafe, in danger of collapsing, and a fire hazard. In a dramatic gesture to demonstrate that these claims were untrue, Smathers refused to move out of the building when the new Capitol was completed. When the executive tower was finished and the governor and the cabinet finally moved out, I stayed on because um, I just wanted to demonstrate that According to the Corps of Engineers and our own studies, the state historic capital building was perfectly sound. And the way to do it was saying, hey, wait a second, we are going to stay here because we're not concerned about it. And that, of course, was a, a PR stunt in many respects, but we're in a political fight. And we just had to make a point that all the reasons that everybody had said the historic state capital building had to be torn down were false. And by staying there, uh, of course, the governor didn't stand by, and he got the fire marshal, the insurance commissioner fire marshal, Bill Gunner, and Bill always has felt bad about this. But in fact, with so few people in the historic Capitol building, if a fire had broken out in another part of the building, it could have spread, and then before anybody knew anything about it, because there were not the necessary fire alarms and things like that, which could have been provided, but the governor wasn't going to do that. And so he finally said, yes, if you stay there as you are now, that would create a, a threat to your employees. And with that, uh, we had to move into the new Capitol building. But the point had been made. And by that time, um, even Don Tucker, the Speaker of the House, was told by his colleagues, hey, you can't tear it down. And the 1902 Capitol building, which is a magnificent structure, a beautiful structure, they agreed that our proposal was what needed to be done. And 
So we were surprisingly successful, even though when we first started off, we didn't think we had a chance. The Florida Historic Capitol Building has been restored to its 1902 appearance. Since 1982, the building has been a museum with exhibits documenting the history of Florida government from the territorial period to the present. Items on display at the Florida Historic Capitol Museum include a pair of shoes worn by Governor Lawton Childs as he literally walked the entire length of Florida during his 1970 campaign for the U.S. Senate, the roll-top desk of William Sherman Jennings, who was governor of Florida from 1901 to 1905, a Spanish colonial church bell from 1758 donated by the Florida Historical Society, and an infamous butterfly ballot from the controversial 2000 U.S. presidential election. Bruce Mathers. Oh, it's a magnificent museum. It's really a focal point of people visiting Tallahassee. You know, the new Capitol building is magnificent, but it's just a tall, it looks like a tall condominium. And there are beautiful interior parts of it, uh, the legislative chambers, but they say they enjoy going and seeing the historic capital. And what uh, the legislature has done, they've taken over, they've done a great job, they've restored it. A few minor things had to be done, but they, we've created a wonderful museum, and you can learn about the legislature, the executive, and even the Supreme Court. Students come in and use the facilities for debate societies. They will bring student classes from all over North Florida and bring them in and have them participate as legislators. But it's a, a real living historical museum. Visitors to the Florida Historic Capital Museum can see the rooms where each branch of Florida government functioned. Mary Adkins, author of the book Making Modern Florida, How the Spirit of Reform Shaped a New State Constitution, imagines the new constitution being debated in the Senate chamber. Oh yes, I really do. I went there and stood in the Senate chamber and said, you know, Chesterfield Smith would have been right up there. Here's the well where people would go if they wanted to talk about something or put forth an amendment. Here's where the court reporter would be. It was, it was really neat to see it. And I was able to add some of the details to my book, too. So the 1978 Constitution Revision Commission, actually, um, the new Capitol was finished while they were meeting. So they met partly in one and partly in the other. We spoke with former Florida Secretary of State Bruce Mathers and Mary Adkins, author of the book Making Modern Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
house fire in the early 20th century nearly consumed some important historical documents. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here the letter book of Governor John Milton. Yeah, that's right. Uh, governor Milton was the fifth governor of the state of Florida, which had only been admitted to the Union in 1845. He was elected in 1860, was inaugurated in October of 1861, and served until 1865. Uh, now, Milton was not a native Floridian. He was actually born in Georgia in 1807, became a lawyer, worked in Alabama, Georgia, New Orleans, uh, had spent some time in Florida serving with the Georgia militia during the Indian Wars. And then in the 1840s, he finally made Mariana in Jackson County his permanent home in 1846. But Milton was known long before he ever came to Florida as a brilliant orator and was a bit of a firebrand. He was an ardent states' rights advocate. So in the 1850s especially, this was a very raucous time for American politics, especially in the South, and Florida being a big part of that scene. And when Milton came to Florida, he sort of jumped right into the uh, political situation in Tallahassee. He was elected to the Florida State House of Representatives, served one term, and then, as I said before, was elected governor in 1860. Now, it's interesting to point out what Florida was like at that time. So according to the 1860 census, the population of the state was only 140,000 individuals, uh, 61,000 of whom were, were slaves. So the economy of Florida was uh, heavily dependent upon upon slave labor, which of course was linked to the beginnings and the origins of what would become the American Civil War. And Governor Milton was a, a slave owner himself. He had a large plantation known as Sylvania. Outside of Mariana, he had uh, close to 50 slaves. So he certainly believed in slavery as a means for the preservation of what he felt were the rights of the southern states and the rights specifically of the state of Florida at that time. Now, these documents are from Milton's time as governor of Florida. What sort of things are we looking at here? Well, we have in the possession of the Florida Historical Society Library a really incredible collection of documents known as the Governor's Letter Book. Now, a letter book is a compilation of transcripts of letters that were both sent and received from the governor's office during his term. So uh, we have the first half of the book. It dates from his inauguration in October of 1861 till about mid to late 1863. The second half of the journal is actually in the possession of the State Library and Archives in Tallahassee. Now, we're actually looking at the original transcripts. And, and you'll notice the pages are somewhat fragile. That's because they were involved in a fire in the mid-teens. Governor Milton's grandson, William Milton, who served as a U.S. senator in the early part of the 20th century, was in possession of this letter book. Uh, his home, unfortunately, caught on fire sometime around 1915, 1916. And these letters were inside of a tin box. And luckily, he was able to get them out before the, the flames engulfed the entire uh, building. But we lost a lot of original letters that were part of the, the Milton collection. So the letter book really is an incredible glimpse into the workings of the governor's office during uh, the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history, at least on U.S. soil, of which, as I mentioned before, Florida was a, a very big part of. So the, the nature of the letters are fairly interesting, too. So keep in mind that Florida was the third state to secede from the Union in 1861. In fact, Florida had already seceded before Governor Milton had even taken office. And a lot of these letters deal with the logistics of maintaining 
a war within the South. Now, Florida contributed approximately 15,000 soldiers to the Confederate cause, and that was through volunteers and also uh, through conscription. Now, that was per capita more than any other Southern state. Uh, Many of these young men, of course, never came back to the state of Florida, and it had a disastrous effect on the economy of the state. And we can see that through a number of letters. Here we're looking at a letter from mid-1863, and it says here, quote, we, the undersigned citizens of Polk County, unquote. And it goes on to explain the nature of what's happening in Polk County in 1863. This is halfway through the war. Supplies are are extremely limited because the state of Florida is sending all of its cattle and salt and other agricultural products to the armies in the field. So here you have these families and people who are trying to survive, and many of whom were subsistence farmers, trying to survive, uh, who were struggling quite a bit. And this letter, here we have 50 citizens of Polk County who signed the letter, and they're asking the governor, please, to uh, allow them to not be conscripted into Confederate service because in 1860 there were 175 eligible voters and of those 175 eligible voters there were less than 50 who were in the entire county by 1863. The rest were either employed by the Confederacy somewhere else or they had been killed in battle. So on the home front Milton was dealing with a lot of serious domestic issues and the Confederate government at the time wasn't providing them with uh, very many resources. There were no rail lines coming into Florida or connecting to any other southern states uh, so the governor was constantly pleading with Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States of America, for supplies, for military assistance. All the while, the Union forces are uh, controlling most of the major port towns in Florida. Armies are making forays into the interior, and the state of Florida and the citizens of Florida were, were suffering quite a bit. Well, tell us what happened to Governor Milton after the Civil War. Well, I mentioned that uh, he served until 1865. Of course, the war ended in April of 1865, and Governor Milton did not see the end of the war. He was found with a gunshot wound to his head in his home in in Mariana. Now, no one can prove for certain, it's believed to have been suicide, and and most of that comes from the fact that one of the last speeches he gave to the state legislature, uh, he's quoted as saying that he would prefer death to reunion. And again, being the strong Southern man, he went down with the ship, so to speak, and again, never saw Florida's reunion union that came a few years later. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Drive-in theaters are pretty rare these days, although they were very popular in the mid-20th century. Holly Baker, a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. I particularly love movies, especially science fiction, and I remember seeing The Thing from Another World in 1951 here in Orlando, and it really scared the pants off of me. That was Irv Lipscomb, lifelong resident of Winter Garden, Florida, and movie theater history enthusiast. He recently wrote a book titled Flickers, Fires, and Dreams, The Story of Winter Garden's Theaters. Irv Lipscomb sat down with me to talk about the history of drive-in movie theaters in Florida. Even though drive-ins were introduced in 1933, watching movies on large screens from the comfort of one's automobile did not become popular until after World War II. 
Drive-ins reached their height of popularity in the 1950s and 1960s as American car culture emerged. With the introduction of new highway systems and increased leisure time, Americans spent more time in their cars than ever before. Irv Lipscomb has more about drive-ins during that time. At its height, there were approximately 4,000 drive-ins operating, but uh, some people labeled them as immoral because there was quite a bit of privacy in your own car, you know, and because of that, they got, got the nickname that they were passion pits. Parents liked them, though, because they could take their kids with them and not have to hire a sitter. They never charged for the kids. The kids 12 and under were always free, so that was a big drawing point also. Like many Americans of his generation, Irv Lipscomb spent a lot of time at the drive-in. I asked him if he had any memories of going to the drive-in as a child. Oh, yes. <laughs> we went to the drive-in a lot. Uh, there were five children in my family, and we would uh, pop a huge bag of popcorn before going because my family, you know, wasn't that financially solvent, and with five kids and everything, it would be expensive to buy all that stuff at the drive-in. So we brought our own. We'd bring blankets, and the older three of us would uh, get down on the blankets and enjoy the movie. Before the show started, there was usually a playground up toward the front of the screen, and we, of course we would go there for swings and sliding boards and all that. My two younger sisters wore pajamas when they went to the drive-in because uh, they would always go to sleep anyway, so that worked for them. With the year-round pleasant weather, Florida was an ideal state for drive-in theaters. In 1938, one of America's first drive-in theaters opened in Miami. By the late 1950s, at the peak of drive-in popularity, there were more than 150 drive-in theaters in Florida. Irv Lipscomb recalls some of the drive-ins that used to exist in Central Florida. In Orlando, there were quite a few drive-ins. The ones that I can remember are the Cool Avenue, the Rymar, the Orlando, the Pine Hills, and the South Trail. Oh, plus the Washington Shores. Aldemont Springs had the Prairie Lake, Winter Park had the Winter Park drive-in, Eustace had the movie garden, Leesburg had the crest, Coco had Island Beach. There were also drive-ins I remember in Titusville, Melbourne, Kissimmee, and Claremont, but I can't remember the names of them. By the 1970s and 1980s, increased land values and new media, such as color television and the VCR, meant that less people were going to the drive-in. Today, there are only about 300 drive-in theaters left in the United States. There are less than 10 drive-ins in Florida, including the Silver Moon Drive-In in Lakeland, the Ocala Drive-In in Ocala, and the largest drive-in in the United States, the Thunderbird, also known as the Swap Shop Drive-In in Fort Lauderdale. While drive-in theater going will likely never be as popular as it was in the 1950s and 1960s, friends and families in Florida still go to the drive-in. I mourn the passing of what we used to have. Orlando used to have five theaters downtown. But my dad always told me you could always depend on chains as the years go by. And it certainly has proved to be true in theater history. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week until then, you can visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Robert Casanello, Holly Baker, and Ben DiBiase. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.